burnout is rampant. It doesn't need to be this way. You really need to stop chasing achievements and start aligning our lives with purpose. And, and so if we can help more people with that, that would be incredible. Welcome to the Physician Pharmacist Podcast, a show designed to shed some light on a very unusual pathway into medicine. I'm your host, Nathan Gartland, and I'm a licensed pharmacist and fourth-year medical student. I'm also the author of PharmD to MD and the owner of the Physician Pharmacist Company. As this podcast has grown, we have had the tremendous opportunity to broaden our scope and explore other non-traditional pharmacy and medical careers. The PharmD opens so many doors, and by listening in, you will have the opportunity to learn from experts in the field on how to start your own journey today. Before we start with today's interview, I'd like to announce that we are actively searching for new guests to interview on the podcast. If you think you have a unique story or interesting life experience related to medicine, pharmacy, or business, please reach out for the potential to be a guest on the show. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Felix Becker, a former trauma surgeon and U.S. Air Force veteran who has broadened his entrepreneurial reach through the creation of a successful coaching company called SuccessWork. Dr. Becker leverages his surgical precision and military background to cut through the complexities of life guiding dissatisfied professionals and companies towards a better path. With a passion for helping introverts become extraordinary, Dr. Becker has been coaching since early 2023, having worked with many clients to promote positive impact on their lives and their careers. Dr. Becker started his career by obtaining his medical degree from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Upon completion of his degree, he finished five years of general surgery residency at Abington Memorial Hospital, after which he worked towards becoming a trauma surgeon at the St. Louis University Hospital. Then he finished a one-year fellowship in surgical critical care. After working as a trauma surgeon for a short period, he transitioned to subspecialty of wound care, where he then worked for a subsequent four years before leaving medicine to pursue his business ventures. In this episode, we'll explore Dr. Becker's journey in the military, life as a trauma surgeon, and ambitions to become a successful life coach. Additionally, we will talk about the building blocks of starting your own business, creating your own personal brand, and lastly, how to respark the flame that many healthcare professionals lose along the way. All righty, welcome to the show, Dr. Becker. Happy to have you today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This is a fantastic opportunity I've been looking forward to. Yeah, I think we have a lot of really interesting things to, to talk about. And so, you know, kind of let's take things way back um, and back to the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, yourself and where you're from? Yeah, sure. I mean, how far back do you want to go? Uh, so I was born and raised <laughs> in Germany uh, and I was 15 when we came to the States. And I, I would say my story, my modern story, really, that that's where it begins. Uh, I was, uh, like I said, 15, which is a great age to leave uh, your country. Uh, leave all the friends that you've made since childhood behind and start new. And uh, I was thrown uh, in 10th grade into a college prep school here in the States. So I come from Germany where I did have English as a second language. You know, I knew enough to get around the grocery store and, and, and live and survive. But did I have enough to really, you know, survive a college prep school? I didn't even know what college was or what that meant at the time. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember my... my um, my summer reading assignment was uh, 1984 by George Orwell. And we were supposed to write a six-page uh, six reflection essay on it. And I had no idea what that meant. So I just hacked away at the keyboard and I came up with six pages. It was just completely random, uh, nothing thought out. Uh, completely failed that assignment. It was so bad, the teacher said she would never <laughs> want me to see this paper again. And um, 
uh, yeah, so uh, uh, my first uh, book that we read was uh, House on Mango Street. Uh, I got a D minus on that paper. Uh, and then uh, we read uh, Henderson, The Ranking. And I spent a lot of time with my teacher uh, to learn English, to learn how to uh, really read English and understand it and then write a better essay. And I ended up getting an A minus on that paper. And that was the lowest grade uh, I actually received in English from then on. Um, so my, my English really transformed tremendously thanks to Tracy Harrison back in back in 10th grade here in high school. Uh, so uh, the reason I bring this up is my whole life transformed because of this move. Uh, you know, I was I was struggling at first because I left all my friends behind. I had no so social circle here. I had no friends. The distances are so, so vast. You need a car to get around. Uh, you know, I could just hop on my bike and ride down the street to see my friends. Uh, so it, it was definitely a difficult time, especially as, as a 15 year old, as a teenager. Um, but it gave me an opportunity to completely redefine my life. Uh, and I say this, you know, back in Germany, I was not a good student. Uh, my grades were slowly on the decline. Uh, I just didn't care for it. You know, I, I would much rather play video games after school or play soccer with my friends. I had no interest in school, but I, I started to recognize that uh, even in Germany. And I wanted to, uh, things to change. And so coming here uh, to the States then pr uh, provided me an opportunity to completely turn my academic life around. Uh, and, and so even though it was uh, socially and culturally challenging, academically, it was exactly the reset that I needed. Uh, so that if, if we go back to the beginning, I think that's, that's where my journey really uh, starts. Wow. I mean, that's incredible. I can only imagine like kind of transitioning and trying to learn an entire brand new language um, on top of, I guess, well, like you were saying beforehand, you weren't necessarily a, a very academic student and then being thrust into this kind of foreign environment. I, I can understand why that's kind of put your feet to the fire a little bit and kind of forced you to make a mindset sh shift there where you said to yourself, I need to make a difference now. I, I need to actually kind of improve myself and to kind of advance myself. And so is that what kind of prompted you to pursue medical school? Or do you have like some kind of, uh, I guess, another initial exposure that, that prompted you down this journey? <laughs> medicine, yes. Uh, so I, I should say, I never really wanted to go into medicine in the first place. I wanted to become an airline pilot and fly the big jets. And my hmm. high school, my senior year uh, was the 2001-2002 school year. And uh, you perhaps remember September 11th, 2001. So during my senior year, 9-11 happened and uh, pretty much everyone in my circles, uh, my neighbors, my friends, my family, uh, teachers, everybody uh, really discouraged uh, me to pursue a career in aviation. Uh, and so uh, all the opportunities that were presented to me, uh, whether that was volunteering after school, you know, to bulk up my little resume for college uh, or, or even uh, just friendly opportunities that somebody said, hey, you want to come with me, uh, always had some kind of connection with the medical world. Uh, one of my uh, first jobs was actually as a component tech in a blood bank. And so I would you know, take the whole blood mm -hmm. that, that people donated, spin it down into the separate components, uh, and then we you know, would uh, store uh, fresh frozen plasma, the red cells, the plasma. Uh, and, and I did that for like th about three years. Now, even uh, into my first years of college, I came back to this blood bank and was still privately owned. Uh, and I would do that. And uh, I was just given tons of opportunities uh, and tons of exposure with the medical world. And so uh, when I went to the University of Miami for my undergraduate studies, uh, it was, uh, you know, I would say 80% of the people there were pre-med and 80% of the pre-med students were bio majors. <clears throat> 
And so mm-hmm. uh, I said, well, I, I'm fine being pre-med because uh, that seems to be the path I'm taking. But I, I did want to be different. Something just, you know, I just didn't connect with the biology aspect very well. Uh, so I, I pursued a degree in chemistry, which spoke to me a whole lot more. And I really, I really, really even got into physical chemistry, which is, uh, you know, a lot of the interface between physics and chemistry. There's a ton of calculus involved. Uh, it's all just math equations. And uh, that stuff just was just natural to me, right? You know, I, I didn't even have to really think about that. I didn't have to study. It just, it just made sense to me. Uh, and I remember even my professors at the time were like, are you sure you want to go into medicine? This doesn't really seem to be where, where your brain is at, where your heart is at. I said, no, no, no I'm, I'm going to do medicine. Uh, and, and so I, I did go into medicine. I stayed in Miami for medical school. Uh, I stayed in Miami for the wrong reasons, which was a woman, uh, but it ended up working <laughs> out, uh, fantastic because the school is, is honestly, is phenomenal. The training I received, uh, from the medical side of things was just, um, uh, it, amazing, you know, just, uh, uh, give you some ideas. I mean, we, we saw patients almost from day one. Uh, we were not given the short white coats. They wanted us to have the long white coats because they wanted us to be and act like doctors uh, the whole time we went through school. Uh, they never, you know, they never, they really made us feel included. But uh, this was, uh, you know, going back to my academics, this was the first time that I struggled academically uh, because the, the content just didn't really connect with me. I wasn't excited about it. It just didn't get me going. Uh, but I somehow got through it and P equals MD. And so I got, I got the MD. Uh, and, uh, I, I wanted to general surgery then, uh, now how do I end up in general surgery? I know you're going to ask that question. So when, when, you know, I, I'll, I'll just tell you. <laughs> that was my follow-up. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, you know, I have a podcast myself, so I already, I, I kind of see where you go with this. Um, so I went to medical school thinking I wanted to do emergency medicine. Uh, the, the reason, the big reason for that was one of our neighbors and family friends was an ER doc. And so I spent a lot of time in the ER with him, uh, getting to see patients and having that experience. And, and I thought that was kind of cool, uh, getting to help people in some really dire situations and turn their lives around. Uh, but, but then I did my internal medicine rotation in medical school, and I saw the hypertension and the diabetes and all the patients that we admitted out of the ER. And I saw a very different side of the ER all of a sudden. I was like, this is really not what I want to deal with. These people need a really good primary care physician to keep them out mm-hmm. of the ER and they don't have that. Now I have to like make up for the deficiencies in the medical system by, by admitting to the hospital. So I, I, I fell out of love with emergency medicine at that time. And the problem now I had was this was in my third year of medical school. I had signed up with the Air Force with a health profession scholarship. And the time was, I had already scheduled two emergency medicine rotations with the Air Force uh, that year. And so uh, 30 days before I was supposed to travel, uh, I made arrangements to change my specialty. And uh, uh, my next rotation was actually after internal medicine was general surgery. And um, I I knew, the only thing I knew at the time was that I don't know what I want to do, but I know I don't want to be a surgeon. And so we had, uh, there were four elective rotations that we could uh, choose. And I chose the pediatric surgery rotation because that's the one people chose who didn't want to go into surgery. You know, I had the, the, uh, you, you weren't uh, there in the hospital at 4 a.m. You weren't staying till 10 p.m. Uh, the attendings were nice. Everybody was inclusive. You know, it, it was just a, a more collegial atmosphere. It was friendlier. Everybody who was doing pediatric surgery knew they didn't want to become into, uh, go into surgery. And so they weren't pushed as hard as the, the other students. But uh, on my first day of the rotation, uh, one of the attendings uh, took me in the OR with him and he asked me to place a center line on a seven-year-old. And, uh, you know, I was like, what? what? <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know what a central line is. <laughs> Uh, but but what I what I 
learned to love on that rotation was uh, a few things. One is we can make, again, that a huge amount of difference in a very short period of time for people who are in very dire straits. It's never a good day if you have to see a surgeon, right? I mean, if you think about it, it there's no situation in life uh, other than uh, you know the cosmetic surgery uh, aspect uh, but outside of that, really on the medical side of things, not the cosmetic, but the medical side of things, there's never a good day when you have to see a surgeon. And so um, I really like that we were able to turn things around for people very quickly. And it was hands-on. I love I love hands-on stuff. Uh, that's why I like to you know, wrench out my Jeep or build furniture. It's just, you know, I like working with my hands. And uh, so I, I, I realized that actually I did want to become a surgeon. So I made arrangements with the Air Force to change my emergency medicine rotations into general surgery rotations. And so I was able to do that, which in, in the long run worked out better for me because uh, on the health profession scholarship, you not only have to go through the civilian match, you have to go through the military match first. You know, the military has certain needs that it needs to uh, fulfill. And so same, not just on the, on the, you know, the warfare uh, front, uh, but also on the medical front, you know, they don't need 50 surgeons or, you know, 50 emergency medicine positions uh, coming online in a given year. So they have specific needs that they need to match. And so my year that I matched uh, in the military, uh, the emergency medicine match, the folks that went through emergency medicine as a specialty, uh, I want to say there was, I, I know for sure there was more applicants than there were spots. Uh, you know, I was like, mm. 38 applicants to 34 spots or something. It was, it was just crazy. So I, there's a good chance I would have not even matched into emergency medicine. And then I would have just done a general medical rotation. In surgery, it was the other way around. There were, I think, 32 or 31 applicants for 34 or 35 spots. So everyone who wanted to get general surgery got general surgery. And I was also lucky enough that uh, on the Air Force side of things, they only had, I think, seven spots for general surgery residents. And so the, the folks that come out of UCHS, the military school, uh, they have to go through a military program. They cannot defer into a civilian program. They have to remain within the military for their, uh, for their training. And so out of those seven spots with 30 some applicants for the, who, who, you know, for the general surgery, um, I ended up getting civilian deferred, which means I got to go through now the civilian match to get a civilian residency. And so I ended up uh, in Abington, Pennsylvania, and a fantastic general surgery training program. And I uh, spent my next five years there uh, becoming a general surgeon, trained by some phenomenal private practice and academic surgeons. It was, uh, you know, from a, from a general surgery training perspective, it was absolutely phenomenal uh, and incredible training. Wow. I mean, there's certainly a lot to unpack there too. Um, I'm, I'm hoping actually that you can expand a little bit more on like the HPSP program. I get a lot of questions about this. And so I was wondering if you'd be able to go over maybe some of the more of the details that goes into this, particularly with like the financial benefits. And you kind of were alluding to it already, like with the positions that are available. I can't imagine the military needs a ton of pediatric hemonc uh, physicians, but they certainly <laughs> okay. need a lot more trauma surgeons or something else. So could you maybe elaborate more on that as well? Yeah, sure. I mean, granted, I went through the military match uh, in like 2009. So uh, th this information certainly is outdated. Um, I signed up for HPSP uh, in my freshman year of medical school. Uh, the pizza was good. What can I say? Uh, the recruiter came and brought Papa John's and I was hungry <laughs> that day. Uh, but I also Always I also get the realized, free pizza. Yeah, right. Always get the free pizza. Never say <laughs> no to free. Uh, but I also realized that medical school was expensive. And uh, what I saw here was an opportunity to have not just the school paid for, have the supplies paid for, have health insurance, 
uh, and get a stipend on top of that. So uh, during my three years of medical school, so my, my living arrangements all of a sudden became a whole lot better. Uh, and then I owed three years on active duty at the end after my training. Uh, so three years of school, three years of training uh, that they paid for. And then I owed three years on active duty. And I was like, well, you know, in three years, uh, it's a short, short amount of time that financially for what I was, was looking at long-term, it wasn't really going to move the needle one way or another because I was still going to be at the beginning of my career anyways. Plus, there might be the mm -hmm. opportunity to travel and see places that I would otherwise not have an opportunity to see. So I really saw it as a win-win situation for me to join the program. Uh, now, I think the program probably has changed since, since I joined. I, I know the year after I signed up, they started with a sign-on bonus. So I missed out on the twenty or $25,000 oh. sign-on bonus by a year. Of course. <laughs> uh, so I didn't get that, but uh, I did get a stipend, which allowed me to buy a car and have uh, a set of wheels and, and be able to you know have more mobility. And like I said, they paid for all the supplies, all the required textbooks. And so I got books that otherwise I probably wouldn't even have bought because uh, they paid for it. Uh, and then um, I, I also had to go through the officer training uh, as well, uh, which which uh, there was uh, three of us who did uh, who did the Air Force HPSB. One of one of my classmates did Navy. Uh, there's so four in my class that, that did HPSB. Uh, but the three of us uh, that did Air Force, uh, we all went together to the officer training uh, between our third and fourth year, and. That was a that was a wild experience because we all came in commissioned. We already had ranks. We're all we're already officers, uh, but everybody who was training mm -hmm. us were enlisted folks. So if you look at the rank hierarchy, we outrank them, but we had no idea how to put on our uniform, how to march. You know, we we knew nothing about the military, so they couldn't they couldn't necessarily yell at us and say like, drop 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 me give me twenty. They couldn't really do that because technically we outranked them. <laughs> Uh, but there was some there was some understanding between us that uh, we respected their expertise and that they were going to train us, and they respected us for the knowledge we had and the reason we got the rank that we did. Um, so it was actually a, a, a fascinating experience. Um, I absolutely loved those you know five five and a half six weeks whatever it was. Uh, it was in Alabama in July, which was not the best time to be in Alabama, but you know <laughs> uh, it was. Um, uh, definitely a, a, an incredible experience that I'm glad I had, even though I would not go through it again if given the choice. Wow. And I'm curious to know, too, is there a reason that you selected the U.S. Air Force or like as opposed to maybe the Navy or alternatives like the Army? Uh, well, like I said, I, I wanted to fly jets. So I figured the closest the thing that would bring the closest to airplanes was the Air Force. Simple as that. Perfect. Perfect. And so you obviously went to down the surgical route at this point in time, and you did five years of general surgery. And what kind of followed after that? And how did you become like a trauma surgeon? Yeah, so that's an interesting story. And that's the, the only reason I was able to have this story now is because of the Air Force. So I went to a very, uh, it was a community centered general surgery training program, level two trauma center. And I was actually the only person from my class, uh, from a medical school class, that didn't go to a residency program that had university somewhere in the name. So I went to a, a very, it was, but from a technical ability, from a business uh, ability uh, to do medicine after that was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, the best training that I could ever ask for. Uh, we mm -hmm. really focused on patient care, efficiency in the OR, uh, uh, you know, it, all the little nuances that really make a good general surgeon, uh, all the technical abilities. I mean, just absolutely stunning education. Um, but now I owed, after my five years of training, I owed the Air Force three years. Now, uh, just like any time in the Air Force, when you get shuffled around, uh, you get to submit a rank order list for where you want to go. 
And so out of the mm -hmm. 30 or 40 places that they gave me, there were a few that I was like, absolutely not. Uh, and the others I was kind of excited about. I was like, I don't know. Sure. Why not? It's only three years. We could do that. And so I ended up at St. Louis University at one of the trauma training units for the Air Force. Now, the reason I ended up there was I was bottom of the stack, right? I had no time in service, no experience. Uh, and, and everyone else was considered for, before me in that rotation to shuffle people around and where, where they get restationed. And so nobody wanted to go to Sea Star St. Louis to train trauma. And so it was sort of a default uh, that I ended up there just because no one else did. Uh, I didn't even know where St. Louis was on the map. Uh, and so, you know, we ended up at St. Louis and the, this is a fascinating unit. There's no base. The base is actually technically in the university. Uh, so we had like a corner office that was technically our base. Uh, so we didn't wear uniforms. We were fully integrated into the civilian staff. And I got to work uh, at St. Louis when it was still uh, the city with the highest per capita homicide rate in the country. I mean, I, I routinely saw three to five penetrating traumas on a 24-hour call. Um integrated into the trauma training unit now for the Air Force and every medical personnel that uh, has you know, that the Air Force has, has to rotate either through St. Louis or Baltimore every two or three years to be spun up on trauma before deployments. Um, so we were training all the Air Force personnel. We had the civilian residency. We were fully integrated with the civilian staff. You didn't even know who was Air Force and who was civilian staff. Uh, I mean, that's, that's how closely integrated we were with the staff. And so mm -hmm. I got to do trauma surgery and acute care surgery at a level one trauma center. Uh, inner city St. Louis, uh, one of the you know most dangerous places on earth. Uh, uh, when if you think about uh, my life trajectory so far, coming from a community level two trauma center general surgery program, St. Louis University would have never given me a second chance to even look at my applications if I'd wanted to go there because I did I wasn't even fellowship trained at the time, so mm -hmm. I didn't come with a pedigree in trauma. I didn't come from an academic pedigree, so the university would have had no interest in me. I was only there because the Air Force put me there, and. That's where my general surgery training now really, uh, really uh, shone through, because if I hadn't had the technical training that I had in my residency program, there is no way I could have survived St. Louis University. Um, the, the stuff that I saw uh, at St. Louis, like none of the stuff I saw in St. Louis I had ever seen before, heard of before. I mean, it, it's just absolute insanity, uh, the, the medical stuff that we got to see at, at SLU. Uh, and we got technically uh, very proficient. Uh, it was an amazing group of people to work with, very collegial, very friendly. Uh, we all had each other's backs at all times of day. And there was just no, never a question asked. If you needed help, you called, person showed up. And, and it's not even just within the within uh, the trauma world. It was also with the subspecialties. You know, if you need ortho, neurosurgery, uh, urology, uh, it was just never a question asked. Uh, there was never any pushback. It was amazing, incredible group of people to work with. And, and so that's really where I grew into the surgeon that I am now, really. Uh, that's really where, where I became who I am. Uh, so incredible opportunity at SLU, uh, fantastic, fantastic experience. But I, again, I wouldn't have had it if I hadn't been with the Air Force and they wouldn't have stationed me there because no one else wanted to go to St. Louis at the time. <laughs> it's funny how life works like that. And um, I'm curious to know, too, a little bit more. I think just kind of going back a little bit, talking about the, your general surgery training, because you, you kind of emphasize that it's been so influential in your career. And I think surgery gets a, a pretty like tough reputation for being, you know, long hours, like you were saying, how did you survive that, that work experience and like kind of the work-life balance that went into that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, uh, you know, looking back at it, 
Um, I, I think I can kind of see what I did in the moment. It was just a matter of surviving the next step. You know, you just made a list of all the things you had to do and you started checking them off throughout the day. And you just did the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. You just kept going. Uh, you never thought about, you know, all the things you had to do. You really just thought about the next little thing, the next little fire you could put out. Um, you know, it's, it's something that I, I've since learned from the Navy SEALs, for example. Uh, you know, the, the folks that make it through butts training, they don't look at the bigger picture. They don't look at, oh, I still have, you know, nine months of this ahead of me they just look at the next evolution the next exercise the next you know when's the next meal coming um and it's just those little those little things uh that keep you going just the next little step to get you towards the the bigger goal wow i, I mean that's great advice right there too <laughs> as someone yeah. who's just obviously on the, the crest of finishing medical school it's kind of like that same philosophy i'm thinking oh my gosh i still have residency right on the horizon. How am I going to tackle this, this next four years? And so I think that's something uh, good to keep in mind. And for anyone who's considering like going to medical school, a lot of pharmacists like tr make this transition. They are already done four, four to eight years of uh, pharmacy training, and then they have to do another four years of medical school. I think that's uh, it's very hard to digest, I think. And so kind of keeping it in that perspective is, is really important. Um, and right. also curious to know, like from your trauma experience, do you have like a particular like surgical case um, that you really enjoy doing or like you're super excited about when when that particular thing comes in? Obviously, you don't want to see traumas per se, but like from an academic standpoint. You know, uh, I, I don't think that there is such a thing uh, as one thing. Uh, I mean, every patient was just so uniquely different. Uh, I, I looking back at it, I can't even tell you that one particular patient was similar to another. I mean, the, the types of stuff that we saw was every patient was just truly unique and had their own unique challenges. Uh, some of it because of the violence in the city, uh, some of it because it's economically disadvantaged. So there's, there's not a lot of support, not a lot of basic medical care even provided. So people are already sick before they get shot or, you know, run over by cars. Um, so I, I don't know that there's really one thing that I really enjoyed more than anything else. Uh, ev everything was, um, just so unique and different, uh, uh, which is a lot of times why we, you know, we met almost every day to discuss all these patients because we were all sort of scratching our heads. What's the best way to approach this? Um, mm -hmm. because the, these, these, th these are not things you find in textbooks. Uh, this was, this was all, uh, truly situations that, uh, you, you know, if I told you about them, you'd be like, this happens. <laughs> 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 absolutely I, I did a month of trauma surgery um in medical school and i was just amazed i it all, I almost convinced me to, to do trauma surgery at one point um i was thinking about <laughs> it but i don't think i'm cut out for it <laughs> yeah um yeah. but anyways and so you finished up your payback period for uh hpsp and then you had mentioned previously that um off mic that you had transitioned to wound care what was kind of the reason for for making that transition yeah, so uh, actually there's uh, uh, one more year. So after my three years mm -hmm. on active duty uh, with the Air Force at SLU, I was able to stay at SLU for another year. Uh, and I did the, uh, the trauma critical care fellowship during that year, uh, but I was also able to stay as sort of in a hybrid position. So I took staff call at night, but I was the fellow during the day. Uh, so I was paid by both the Department of Surgery as well as the General Medical Education Office, which was uh, kind of a, an awesome, uh, unique place to be. Made a little challenging at times because I'm like, all right, which signature do you use on this note? Am I the fellow right now or am I the attendant? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but I stayed at SLU for another year to do that fellowship. Uh, and I had gotten um, uh, my, my wife and I at the time had uh, separated and she had moved uh, away. 
And so after I was done at SLU, uh, you know, I, ha I had a decision to make. I was like, on the one hand, I really like working here and I love the people and I would, I would love to stay on. But SLU also was undergoing through some leadership changes. We had lost our chair. We had an interim chair who didn't really want to make any big moves. And the university was kind of hemming and hawing on whether they even had a position for me. And uh, I was like, you know what, I, I need something more definitive because I have two kids I need to take care for. So mm -hmm. I ended up making the decision to move to Toledo, Ohio to be closer to my kids. And when I came to Toledo, uh, it was the end of 2019. Nobody was looking to hire a trauma surgeon or a general surgeon. Uh, as a matter of fact, they, well, uh, the, the, one of the, that's not, that's not 100% true. One of the places I interviewed at up in Detroit, uh, they were looking for a trauma position, uh, but they currently had two surgeons uh, in a place that they really wanted five. And I was like, well, if I'm going to be the third guy, you're going to work me to death uh, and your whole system seems <laughs> to be struggling. So I'm going to respectfully mm -hmm. decline this offer because I'm coming here for my kids. I'm really not coming here for the job. Uh, and there was another uh, hospital uh, about 45 minutes south of here that was looking for a general surgeon that I think to this day might still be looking for a general surgeon. They actually did not want to hire me because I had too much trauma experience. So I was like, well, that's your loss. <laughs> it's not like I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a pretty, I'm pretty skilled with a knife, but if you don't want that, uh, help yourself. Uh, so yeah, uh, when I, when I actually, uh, last year, when I looked on the job boards, that position was still open, you know, four years later. So I came here and nobody uh, was looking for trauma. Nobody was looking for general surgery. So uh, I, I got into wound care uh, and, that ultimately uh, was a fantastic move because now I had no call, no nights, no weekends. Uh, but the company I was working for at the time when I first came here, uh, Vora, which is a phenomenal company. Uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, Vora is a great company. I would have loved to stay with them. Um, they just mm -hmm. didn't uh, weren't able to give me the amount of work I needed in order to sustain myself. I was working a day and a half a week. That was it. That's the that's all the work I could mm -hmm. find here in the area. And I was still driving, you know, hundreds of miles to get to all the nursing homes to provide wound care. So. Uh, Avor is a fantastic company in other parts of the country. It just didn't work out here in Toledo. Uh, and they're still struggling uh, with it. Uh, it's just that this area is is different. And uh, the longer I live here and the more people I meet, the more people I know that have had outside experience say the same thing. It's just a, it's just different, <laughs> just to say the least. So I ended up in <laughs> Wooncare. I left Vora because they, they weren't able just to give me the uh, the amount of work that I really needed. Uh, and I joined one of the local hospital systems, uh, which wanted to get back into wound care and nursing homes. And I was like, well, I'm looking for a job that does wound care and nursing homes. That's what I've been doing. Um, and so I, I traded uh, for that company. And I, I was with them for the last three years uh, doing wound care and nursing homes in post-acute, uh, whether it's in rehab or LTAX. And, uh, you know, it, really what ultimately happened is I, I realized, you know, I never really wanted to go into medicine in the first place. And now I'm working in an, in a system that really, uh, you know, uh, prevents me from providing the care that I want to provide. The medicine here in Toledo mm -hmm. really is like 20 years old, and it's really hard to get new, modern, tip of the spear type stuff here. That's why I love being at the university. You know, we did tip of the spear medicine. I mean, we tried uh, new tools, new techniques. We were always trying to innovate and create something new and something better. And that just isn't the case here. It's very slow paced, conservative, old school. Like I said, the stuff here is still like from 20 years ago. And uh, I just wasn't able to, to do what I really wanted to do. Uh, and then with uh, insurance companies not paying for almost much of anything, you know, I, there's 
I can't tell you how many times I prescribed a certain dressing for a patient and the patient got something else entirely. I'm like, why, why do I even exist? If I prescribe something and the patient doesn't get that because the insurance company doesn't want to reimburse it or because the home health agency said it's too expensive for them to pay for, why do I even exist? You don't need me, right? Uh, so, <laughs> you know, just get, I, I got frustrated and burned out and I was never in love with it. Uh, and so it was easy for me to say, I'm done. Uh, you know, I'm going to do something else entirely that's going to make uh, make me happy. It's going to fill my cup where I can truly help people the way I want to help without having all this regulatory BS to slow me down. Absolutely. And I think like you're not, your experience is not like unique in the sense that a lot of healthcare professionals are experiencing this every single day in all different professions, not just in physicians. Um, I have a lot of like pharmacists who reach out to me who say like, I have these golden handcuffs where I make a good wage, have a good living, but I'm stuck a like in a cog in a wheel at that point where I'm just the hamster on the wheel running and running and running. And the interventions that I make are not compensated. They're not, I'm not really connecting with patients and that was the whole reason of going to pharmacy school or going to medical school in the first place. And so right. I think the, the system that we have right now kind of leads to a lot of like burnout and un, I guess like unsatisfied healthcare professionals. And we're going to explore that a little bit more um, in a, a few moments here. But so I think that kind of leads to a perfect segue. Can you tell us, I guess, a little bit more about why you started a business in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I realized that for myself, I was not happy in an employed position because someone else was telling me how to do my job. And I knew that it was a better way to do my job and nobody wanted to listen to me. So I said, well, if they won't listen to me, I'll listen to myself and I'll just spin out on my own and do my own thing. And then I'm my own boss. I make my own rules. I create my schedule and, and I do what I think is best to help other people. Uh, so really that, that was the, uh, that was the incentive. Um, uh, the, uh, I guess the the reason I didn't go with anything medical was again I wasn't in love with a profession to begin with, uh, so mm -hmm. that's really not where my heart was. And uh, when I finally discovered coaching for myself uh, in 22, uh, and I, I became a coach, and I, I saw the impact I can have on others, uh, and I could have more impact in a shorter amount of time with less regulation holding me back. Uh, you know, I just fell in love with that. I was like, this is what I need to do. This is how I can truly have an impact on people's lives, help them get better in a way that doesn't restrict me in any way of, of how I'm going to do it. I love it. And I guess like you found like your little niche, little area of expertise that kind of reinvigorated your passion for, for helping others. And so you have the idea and it's pretty sound at this point, you know, that there is a current need in the market for it. Uh, obviously through our experience in healthcare, you've seen it everywhere you go. So I guess like what initial steps did you take to kind of gain some momentum to create the business? Uh, so uh, I think it starts with when I was at the tail end of Forum and I was looking for something different. I had actually created my first LLC uh, because I was mm -hmm. contemplating doing this just on my own. Uh, but I didn't know enough at the time uh, to really pull this through. So I created the LLC. It was terribly created. I did it all myself. Uh, <laughs> it was just poorly structured. And uh, I... You know, then trying to go through uh, insurance companies and trying to, to get set up for reimbursements. So when I realized this is more than I can handle, uh, there were there are companies reaching out to me for electronic medical record keeping, and some of them wanted ten thousand dollars a month. And I was like, where am I going to get that from? Right? I, I looked at my <laughs> malpractice insurance, and uh, they wanted twenty five thousand dollars for the year. Uh, and I was like, where am I going to get all this money from to pay for all these expenses? 
And I, I got to make more than that in order to even sustain myself. So that's why I stayed in an employed position. Um, but I, I kind of smelled the blood at the time for something better. I just hadn't figured out for myself how to make that happen. And uh, so that was my first LLC. I ultimately folded that because, again, it was poorly structured to begin with. and I didn't use it for anything. Uh, and uh, as, as my life kept going, uh, I uh, gained more experience with business creation and enterprises uh, because my first foray, and probably most people's foray, uh, for out of their employed positions into real estate. And so I, I joined a bunch of real estate investing groups, and that's ultimately how I found coaching as well. Uh, but that, that's really where I started gaining some expertise with, uh, you know, business structure, uh, how to pay taxes, uh, some of the some of the rules and regulations, even just on the business side that go into it. And I started to, you know, even meet people who could help me out with building a better business down the road. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, when when it came now time for me to open my own coaching practice, now I had knowledge about how to structure a business and how to set that up the right way that I didn't have beforehand. Uh, and so it ended up being much more, uh, much more successful venture for me, uh, just because I now had knowledge I didn't have before, because my first LLC, uh, you know, again, it completely failed. <laughs> I guess it just, <laughs> fr from the get go, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And I think, you know, there's a lot of really important points there. The fact that you went out and made the LLC in the first place, not really knowing what you were doing. I think that speaks magnitudes. And I think, you know, for listeners who are interested in kind of starting their own business or getting more involved in those particular areas, you have to just go out there and try it. And you're never going to learn by watching YouTube videos all day and not kind of like pulling the trigger on it. Um, and so I think that's obviously a very important step that you, you took. You took the initiative to move forward. And then you looked back and you saw all the imperfections that were in that, you know, that formation of the LLC. I'm kind of in a similar position too, where I, I made an LLC and then I found out, wow, there was, you know, a couple other states that I should have formed this LLC and that, you know, kind of helps me with, you know, the, the taxes and all the, the other things. So now I'm looking at LLC and C-Corp formations down in Delaware and all that kind of stuff. Um, so things that I... <laughs> You, you can only find out, you know, in, in hindsight, I, when you look back and see all the things um, that you should have done. And so um, a second point, too, that I want to emphasize is that you went out into the community and you kind of almost blended two different areas of expertise where you went to the real estate community or whatever kind of like platforms you were working with and found individuals with different expertise and you were using both your healthcare empathetic you know approach the to management with uh i guess like outside information from those other communities and i think that's that's so important it takes you know rome wasn't built in a day and you need a lot of people and a lot of like kind of different intersections and paths uh, of individuals to kind of make your your business stronger and to grow as an individual yourself um so i think that's really cool that you were able to do all that um and so additionally so you ended up kind of building out this new platform where you've restructured your your company to some degree you've met other individuals what was the next step with kind of getting out in, into the coaching sphere uh yeah so um I, 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 let me let me back up uh, just for a second because uh, i started my training to become a life coach before i started my company uh, and that was one of the fallacies mm. I made with my first company. And I'll, I'll get I'll get to that in a second. So I, I was always raised under the assumption that coaches were snakes oil salesmen, they're swindlers, and who needs a coach anyways? Uh, but through my uh, foray into real estate, I found the Bigger Pockets community. Uh, they had a podcast. Brandon Turner was the I, host. And, I love uh, that. Yeah, I have all their books. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Brandon Turner, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, is a is a multimillionaire. Uh, he has his own separate podcast now, a very successful individual. 
And he had mentioned his coach and the difference that his coach had made in his life. And I was like, why would such a successful person need a coach and spent money on a coach? He doesn't need that. He already knows everything he needs to know. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's when I started looking into coaching myself. And that's how I, you know, I learned about Jason Dries, who's uh, Brandon's coach. And uh, that's when I started looking into coaching. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Uh, that's entirely different from what everything that I was ever taught about coaches. And uh, the other the other piece to that was uh, I have depression. I've had suicidal thoughts in the past. I've been through therapy. I've been on seven different antidepressants on my life. And I've never really found good answers for myself in that world. Uh, you know, going to therapy, I was like, can we please stop talking about my mother and talk about me and what I need to do today to get to a better tomorrow? My past was my past. It's done. I can't change that. I understand that. I'm okay with that. I need to know what I can do better today to create a better future for myself. And the therapists were never able to help me with that. Coaches, however, are, right? Coaches are future-oriented. We're, we're looking at where we are today and what we could do to create that better tomorrow for ourselves. And so when I discovered coaching, it was everything that I had always been looking for. Uh, and so it changed my life completely uh, when I had my first coaching experience. I mean, it's been an absolutely transformational. And so what I, what I realized then is I should become a coach because I felt like I needed to share that with others. And so I joined uh, Lumia to become a life coach. And uh, once I once I joined Lumia and uh, was a coach, uh, I started advertising that I was a coach. And here's where here's one thing I did wrong with my previous company that I'm doing differently now. I didn't form my LLC until I had enough income to justify the expense. So mm-hmm. I just uh, you know uh, accepted payment uh, personally. And once I had enough money coming in to say, all right, I'm going to pay for that LLC now. That's when I uh, created that LLC structure. Uh, so I didn't do the LLC first and then started coaching. I started coaching first. And once I had the money come in as a proof of concept, then I created the LLC after that. Interesting. And so you're, what's your kind of, um, I guess, how did you find clients to jump on? So like, that's kind of like the chicken or the egg situation there where it makes sense to wait and defer the LLC until you've had a certain hit a, a threshold of income so that it'll be like better for uh, tax purposes. But yet I think a lot of clients might want to see like a formal LLC. So like, how did you kind of like justify and how did you find those initial clients? Uh, you know, I just went out on Facebook and I said, look, I'm a coach in training and I need hours. Uh, rates are discounted. Hit me up if you're interested. And I had enough people reach out uh, to, uh, to make a few bu- few hundred bucks um, to justify the expense of the LLC, to justify me getting a Zoom license. Uh, and uh, I had money coming in now. And so now I was able to justify the expense of the LLC, the couple hundred bucks I made beforehand. I mean, they're, you know, the, they're not going to make a huge difference in my taxes because uh, mm-hmm. I was still getting my surgeon salary at the same time. So I wasn't really too worried about that. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I formed the LLC. Uh, and that's when I started just structuring it out uh, from then on uh, afterwards. Awesome. And so when it comes to like coaching, um, what kind of like clientele and individuals are you looking for um, in particular? So like as an individual listening to this, like, how do I know that I would benefit from having a coach at this point in time? Like what kind of like clientele are you looking for? You know, uh, first and foremost, uh, you have to have a good relationship with your coach. If, if You can't just hire any coach. It has to be someone who speaks to you, who you resonate with. So if anybody listening to this episode thinks that I could be the, uh, a good coach to them, uh, that's first step. Uh, because if I don't, if, if you listen to me and you think, man, this guy is full of it or, you know, he just, whatever. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't resonate with my message, if you don't resonate with my personality, uh, then we're not, you're not going to make you a client of mine. Um, that said... Uh, what I'm focusing on right now mostly 
uh, although I'm, I'm open to other people who, who think that I could be a good coach to them, uh, are introverts who want to become extraordinary. Uh, I, I've really come to find over the last year uh, with my own coaching training that I've been coaching a lot of introverts. I'm an introvert. Uh, what I've really come to realize is that introverts actually make fantastic leaders. And so all we need to do is unleash that genius within them. Uh, to turn them into fantastic leaders, uh, to help them with their networking uh, experience, uh, to really unleash their genius, to help them make the world a better place for all of us. Um, now, I, I say all this after a year of experience with coaching. I started coaching actually because of my own burnout and all the burnout that we see in the medical world. And I still have burnout programs in my repertoire. So if there are medical folks out there who are burned out and they're maybe not even medical folks, anybody who's burned out with their career, with their life, and they're looking for a different path forward, they're looking for meaning, they're looking for purpose, they're looking for something new, something different than what they're experiencing right now. If you need to get out of the burn pit that is your life right now, I could definitely help with that. I've got a whole program that's called Phoenix uh, that I put together for that. Uh, but uh, that's that's really where I got started with my with my coaching. Um, I have coached real estate investors uh, on mindset and business. Uh, I've had some uh, early on. I had a, a clients who wanted uh, coaching on their on financial aspects of their lives. Uh, so I, I've really done a hodgepodge. But I think it, you know, no matter what. I have to be able to resonate with you. If you're listening to this mm -hmm. and you don't think that I'm the right person for you, then I'm not the right person for you. It doesn't matter who I can coach and who I can help uh, because that, that's ultimately the, the most important part. Fantastic. And kind of following up with that too, um, you know, how do you apply your like surgical precision and like military background? Like, how do you think that has influenced your coaching style and like methodology that you use? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So there, there's, it's funny you, you asked that. Um, so uh, there's three things that I always was taught as a general surgeon uh, that, that surgeons do. And that is take out the bad stuff, hook up the good stuff and stop leading. And that's exactly what I do in my coaching practice. We take out all the bad stuff, we cut out all the bullshit in your life, all right? All the stuff that just feeds you with negativity uh, that, that, that doesn't provide you with any value. We've got to cut all that out. We're going to hook up all the good stuff, right? Your positive mindset, uh, your dreams, your goals, everything you want to achieve and how are you going to do that? And then we're going to stop the bleed. All the people in your life that drain you of energy, the social media influencers, the news media outlets, uh, narcissists, who cares, right? Anything that drains you of energy, we got to stop that bleed uh, to turn your life around and, and make it better. Uh, so yeah, that, that's how I use my, my surgical skills, uh, in, in my, in my coaching practice. In terms of the military skills, I will tell you a lot of, a lot of my leadership training, uh, is, is really coming out of that because the military is very hierarchical in its, in its rank structure, right? Uh, mm -hmm. if you're a major, you're above a captain, you're above a lieutenant. Uh, and, and the same thing, even in medicine, right? A first year student is below a second year student is below a third year student. Uh, but it doesn't mean that every third year student is the same. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that every second year student is stupider than every third year student, right? Everybody has their own journey, mm -hmm. and, and that's even how I've always approached uh, when I when I train my residents or medical students. Is I don't care what year you are. What I care about is where you're at right now and where you're trying to go. What do you need to learn today to make you a better surgeon tomorrow? And, and uh, it's so it's it's not about the rank that you have. It's not about the title that you have. It's about who you are as a person and where you want to go. And so uh, I, I guess that that's how I would say I would incorporate my military uh, experience uh, in, in in showing people on their leadership side of things that it's not about the title. It's not about the rank. It's about who you are as a person. How you lead someone is not dependent on on what rank you wear on the collar. So that's a great message for sure. And you're kind of connecting people with their current position and the goals and their future of where they want to be. 
Um, so I think that that's wonderful. And I guess kind of adding on to that too, do you have like any particular success stories that you feel like through your coaching experience thus far that you've like kind of, that stood out to you or, and not disclosing, you know, specifics, but is there like anything that was particularly memorable where you kind of really helped someone through a difficult time? You know, I think, uh, one of the, one of the first people that I helped, uh, as a coach, uh, really stands out, uh, and, and Sarah won't matter, won't mind that I mention her name. Uh, she came to me. Uh, wanting to become a successful real estate investor. And when I asked her, uh, how do you define that? And she said, well, 100 doors. I'm like, okay, how many doors do you have right now? Doors mean, you know, like little doors, like how many apartments, how many houses mm -hmm. do you have right now? Well, I have 15 doors. I'm like, okay. So how many real estate investors do you know who only have one door or maybe no door at all? And uh, she was like, well, you know, probably like 85% of real estate investors only have zero or one doors. <laughs> I was like, okay, so you're already in the top 15% of real estate investors by your own admission. And uh, it took us a couple of weeks of working through that and, and for her to recognize that she already was a successful real estate investor. And, and so that was one of my, my first big successes as a coach. When I was, I mean, I was totally green. I had like 10 coaching hours under my belt or something, but I was able to get her to see a very different perspective of herself that she actually was successful already. And uh, I still, I'm still finding her on Instagram and, and she's just accelerated her growth since then. It's been just absolutely amazing uh, to have been able to provide that mind shift, that mindset shift for her. Uh, even when I was, like I said, just a fledgling coach at the time. Uh, so yeah, I I, th I still think that is one of my most successful stories that I, I like sharing because it's such a simple thing for anybody looking at it from the outside, be like, duh, you're already successful, you're 50 doors, but uh, she didn't see that. Uh, and so it, it took us a few weeks to get there to change that. And once uh, she did, uh, it was absolutely phenomenal, the, the, the change that, that she went through. That was awesome. That was really cool. Exactly. And, and I'm unfortunately part of that 85% uh, who has zero doors. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm hoping to grow that in the future. <laughs> well, we, but, can, um, we can actually so, talk about that offline because I, I, I got into a couple of real estate ventures over the last year. And uh, I, have a, I have a few doors now myself with, with some partnerships. But I got some connections that I can help you out with if, you, if you're interested. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so kind of like kind of putting everything together at this point before we get to our final questions for the day. Um, so, you know, this is kind of a, a difficult question to, to kind of answer sometimes, but, you know, what do you think is like the biggest challenge in healthcare as a whole? And how do you think we can improve it at this point? Kind of putting together all of like the, you've seen a lot of people, you've coached a lot of people. What do you think is like the most prominent like problem in healthcare? I mean, if I had to sum it up, it's that it's profits over patients. Uh, it's that's quite simply that's 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 it. Profits over patients. Uh, I was uh, in my last three years, I really was just a glorified data entry clerk. Eighty percent of my time was spent away hacking away the keyboard to make sure the documents looked right. It wasn't spent with a patient talking with them about their problems and their needs and their desires. It was spending time in front of the computer to make sure the billing was right, uh, the legalities were right. Uh, so it's it's profits over patients is the biggest problem. Uh, once once we fix that, once we actually put patient care first and actually provide true health care, then everything else will fall into place. Absolutely. And I've actually had some uh, recent guests on the show too, where they've talked about like how the, the burden of EMRs, like you're saying with the documentation challenges and the, I guess the input of AI in the future and kind of making those a lot more condensed and kind of using computers to handle most of the documentation and allowing the clinicians to get back to serving the patients and, and spending more time with them. So I think there's a lot so, of really but, interesting things to come. Yeah, let me, let me counter that. Uh, if, if you're going to create an AI that creates a documentation so that the physician can spend more time with a patient, why do you even care mm -hmm. about the documentation? 
right? If a computer generates the documentation, why is that even important at that point? So, you know, <laughs> I, I think the AI is wonderful, but people are missing the point. The documentation is not important. The patient cares, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so if the AI, yeah, sure, it's great, but all you're doing is creating more documentation. I mean, think about this. I would, I would, I would guess if I had to put a number on it, 99% of the documents that are generated in healthcare never get looked at again. They're out there in the void, somewhere in a database, and no one ever puts eyes on them again. So why do we have them in the first place? Why do we create all these documents if no one is ever going to look at them again? It's a, it's a good point for sure. <laughs> I'll have to talk to the, the podcast colleagues and see what they think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. So we've come to the end of our podcast today, and I still have a, a few final questions that I usually ask everyone to kind of wrap up their experience as a whole. And so, um, you know, how do you maintain a work-life balance despite like doing all this complex coaching, all this like involvement where you're trying to grow your business? Um, I, obviously, as a business owner myself, I understand the, the challenges that come with always trying to do the next thing and trying to kind of move the ball down the field a little bit. What, what kind of ways do you try to maintain your work-life balance and still step away and hang out with your children? Uh, that's, that's an easy answer. I put myself first. Uh, I put my own needs first. So, uh, you know, I'm divorced. I have my kids on weekends. And so I don't really schedule anything on weekends unless I absolutely have to. Uh, I mean, there's some, mm -hmm. some occasional times when I, you know, I record a podcast or something with someone and just the weekends are the only time that we can uh, find common time to make it happen. But for the most part, uh, I, I clear that time in my schedule out entirely. Uh, and, and so I live in, I live and die by my calendar. And actually I created this uh, simple task planner uh, for myself for that reason. Uh, you can buy it on my website if you want. It's on Amazon, but it's on my website for anybody who can see it. Uh, but I live by that. Uh, that's how I schedule my day. Uh, that's how I uh, prioritize uh, my tasks for the day. Um, I, I put together this what I call the two four six system. So, uh, two must dos, uh, two uh, four need dos, and six want dos uh, for the day, and that's it. That's all I do in the day. Uh, so it keeps me accountable. Uh, it keeps me on task. Uh, it pre you know, prevents me from going over, and uh, I'm just in very intentional with with how I schedule my day. Uh, if there's something that my family's doing, my kids are doing, that goes on the calendar first, and everything else gets scheduled around that. Perfect. And that planner will also be linked down in the, the show notes as well. Um, so second to last question, uh, do you have any last minute recommendations to students or graduates interested in pursuing a career path similar to your own? You know, the, the one thing I will say, uh, you know, I, I, I will not tell anybody not to pursue a career in medicine. It can be incredibly rewarding uh, to be able to have those kinds of impacts uh, on, on your life, uh, on, on someone else's life. Uh, but I will say uh, some word of caution. Because when I started my journey coming out of high school, you know, 20 some years ago, medicine was a very different animal. Uh, even when I went through medical school, medicine was a very different animal than it is now. And so looking ahead of your career for the next 20 years, 30 years, however long you have, uh, you know, medicine will continue to change. And what you, what you like perhaps now is not going to be what's, what medicine is going to be like in 10, 15, 20 years. And so I would, I would just say as a word of caution, don't throw all your eggs in one basket. Make sure you diversify and do something outside of medicine as well. Uh, uh, you know, whether that's real estate investing or running a business on the side, do something else so that if and when you burn out on medicine, you have some other option available to you. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And that kind of runs exactly in line with what actually a former guest was saying, Kat uh, Schmali. She was mentioning that the biggest reason for burnout is that individuals don't have activities or interests outside of medicine. And so their life revolves strictly around medicine and then something changes or it's out of their control and their the healthcare system or administration. 
and your world comes crashing down. So like you're saying, it's very important to kind of have those, those backup plans or those other interests outside. So I think that's great advice. All righty. And so what are your personal, professional, or business-oriented goals that you'd like to accomplish in the next five to 10 years? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, on the personal side, I can tell you uh, it's uh, getting out of this house that I'm currently in. Uh, it's just sort of an intermediary housing for me. Uh, and uh, uh, marrying my girlfriend, uh, making her my wife at some point, uh, joining our lives together, uh, and, and building a building a future together. Uh, that's been in, uh, just such an incredible experience for us to get to know each other and grow together over the last year already. And, and I, I want to continue on that. Uh, professionally, I obviously want to expand my my coaching uh, business and and uh, help more people. I really want to help more people. Uh, there's so much negativity in the world uh, that I, that I came from, as a matter of fact, and I, I don't think anybody should live their lives that way. And I think we could turn that around. This, the, the burnout, the amount of burnout that we're seeing, not just in medicine, but uh, in in the world as a whole. I mean, if you if you look at the 2020 Gallup poll, 76 percent of people responded uh, reported symptoms of burnout, and, and that was 2020. Uh, based on 2019 data. So before COVID uh, and things got worse. So burnout is rampant and we don't, it doesn't need to be this way. Um, we we really need to stop chasing achievements and start aligning our lives with purpose. And, and so if we can help more people with that, that would be incredible. It'll make the world a better place. Uh, obviously building my business, uh, building the podcast myself uh, and, and having more opportunities to spread the message, get to know more people uh, and, and network more. Fantastic. <clears throat> all righty. So we've come to the end of our interview today, and I'd like to thank all of our listeners for the support. If you have any additional questions about the medical school journey, check out my website at www.physicianpharmacist.com. Before we let you go, Dr. Becker, how can our listeners get in touch with you or learn more about you? Uh, the easiest way is through my link tree, brokesurgeon.com or felixbecker.com will take you there as well. But brokesurgeon.com uh, will link you to my podcast, my website, uh, all my social media profiles, and reach out to me. All righty. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I know you're extremely busy and I, I really do appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was great. I love this conversation. You're doing some good work there, Nathan. Love it. <laughs> All righty. Have a good one.